Hello and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey and I am still recording from Athens, Greece, where apparently Pope Francis is in town today and much of the center of the city is blocked off. Uh, It's also raining, so it's not exactly the most conducive day to go outside and explore the city. I am leaving to Italy on Monday, crossed, crossed fingers, because I have a lecture that I'm giving at the European University Institute on Wednesday. I just wanted to say thank you for the emails that some of you sent to me after my last very emotional, I think, um, podcast. I apologize for that. And, you know, it just doesn't get easier. In fact, the day after I posted that episode, my beautiful little basset hound of 10 years uh, had to be put down. So it's been a really rough, really rough week. And, uh, and I guess, you know, this is just life. That's what sometimes happens. You get, you can't, you can't always be on your game, as they say. So, and, 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 you know, and having read as much as I have about Alexandra Kolontai's life and her work and the various challenges that she had overcome, you know, she lived through World War One, she lived through World War Two, she lived through the Bolshevik Revolution and Stalin's purges and the famine and all of the show trials and, and awful things that happened in the Soviet Union in the 30s, the death of her former husband and lovers and friends and colleagues. She'd been through a lot and, you know, she wasn't always on her game. So that brings me some small bit of comfort sometimes when I think about it. Anyway, we're going to continue with the final portion of this really great essay on the new woman that I have abridged. For the purposes of this podcast, I really kind of distilled down the parts of the essay where she's really talking about the emergence of this new woman. This is Kolontai. But who are they, these single new women? How has life created them? The single woman, she is a child of the large-scale capitalist economic system. The single woman is not a rare phenomenon. Rather, as a lawfully repeated everyday phenomenon, she was born simultaneously with the infernal dinning of the machines and the factory sirens calling to work. Every great transformation still within the sphere of our memory in the conditions of production and under the impact of the ever newer and newer victories of large-scale capitalist development compels woman also to adapt herself to the environing reality in the struggles for existence. The woman in the process of formation stands in a relation of closest dependency to the historical stage of economic development which mankind is going through. With the change of economic conditions, with the evolution of productive relations, the inner spirit of woman also changes. The new woman could emerge as a type only with the growth in the number of women who were earning their own livelihood. Half a century ago, the participation of women in industrial life was viewed as a deviation from the norm, as a disturbance of the natural order of things. Even radical minds, even socialists sought for ways of bringing them back into the home. 
Today, these long outdated and discarded views at most are repeated in the prejudices and musty standoffishness of desiccated reactionaries. Half a century ago, civilized countries counted several tens of thousands, at most 100,000 women in the ranks of the working population. Today, the figure of working woman already surpasses the male figure. Now, civilized nations have available to them not 100,000, but millions of women workers. Millions of women, like men, press on the labor market. Thousands of women conduct commercial firms. Hundreds of thousands have a profession, serve science or art. According to statistics, there are more than 60 million women working in Europe and North America. A more grandiose march of the army of women workers has not yet been seen. And more than 50% of this army are single women. That is to say, such who are totally dependent on their own abilities and who do not follow the old female custom of hanging on the coattails of the quote-unquote breadwinner. The production conditions which, for many centuries, had fettered women to the home, to the spouse, the breadwinner, unexpectedly have torn away the rusty chains from her and thrust her, the weak, the unprepared sex, onto the newly opened thorny path which draws her into new snares of economic dependency, those woven of capitalism. Under the threat of being shelterless, of suffering hunger and privations, women learned to stand alone without the support of the father or of the husband. Woman was forced to adjust herself swiftly to the altered condition of existence. These shattering experiences put to a cruel test the moral axioms on which she had been raised by her grandmothers of the good old days. With astonishment, she was forced to recognize the uselessness of the whole moralistic baggage with which she had been saddled on life's path. The feminine virtues on which she had been raised for centuries, passivity, devotion, submissiveness, gentleness, poised to be fully superfluous, futile, and harmful. Harsh reality demands other characteristics from independent women, activity, resistance, determination, toughness, that is to say, characteristics which hitherto were viewed as the hallmark and privilege of men. Robbed of the customary tutelage exercised over her by the family, woman suddenly catapulted out of the warm nest onto the path of the struggle for existence and the class struggle was forced to equip and arm herself with the physical characteristics possessed by the man, her comrade who is better fitted for the struggle for existence. In this hasty adjustment to the new conditions of existence, woman, quite indiscriminately, has often seized and appropriated male rights that upon closer scrutiny turned out to be truths only to the bourgeois class. Present-day capitalist reality altogether bends its efforts and, in all possible ways, to make out of a type who stands incomparably closer to man than the woman of the past. This assimilation proves to be a natural and inescapable consequence of the inclusion of women in the sphere of the economy and of social life. 
the capitalist world makes allowance only for women whom it succeeds in stripping of their feminine virtues and in adapting to a philosophy that hitherto belonged only to the fighter for existence to the man. There is no place in the ranks of those earning their own livelihood for the unfit, that is to say, the woman of the old type. Here too, therefore, a natural selection among the women of the different social strata is discernible. Only the stronger, more resistant, disciplined nature arrives in the ranks of those earning their own livelihood. Those earning their own livelihood constitute a progressive army of women in which we come upon representatives of all the social strata. Those who still believe that the new single woman is the fruit of the heroic expenditure of energy of the strong, who assert themselves as individualities, should disabuse themselves of a gruesome error. The transformation of the feminine psyche of its inner psychological and intellectual structure is accomplished primarily and principally in the lower depths of society, where under the scourge of hunger, the adjustment of the working to the sharply changed conditions of existence proceeds. They solve no problems. They cling with all their might to the past and only by forcibly bowing to the Lord of history, to the forces of production, do they reluctantly set out on the new road. Full of sadness, cursing, or in tender nostalgia, they long to go back home, to the familiar warming hearth, to the quiet, modest family joys. Oh, if only they could leave the path, if only they could again return to the past. But the ranks of women comrades close ever more tightly, and the feminine stream is born ever and ever farther away from the past. Naught else is left to them save to habituate themselves to the oppressive narrowness and to arm themselves for the struggle for their place, for their right to life. A consciousness of an independent personality in the woman of the working class arises and is strengthened under the rule of the dark satanic mills, and their faith in their own power grows accordingly. The process of accumulation of new moral and spiritual qualities in the working woman, which are indispensable for her as the representatives of a definite class, proceeds consistently, inevitably, and irresistibly. But the most essential element in this process of the restructuring of woman's inner countenance affects not only individuals, but masses. The individual will drowns and disappears in the collective effort of millions of women of the working class to adjust to the new conditions of existence. Here too, capitalism works on the broadest scale. By tearing women away from the home, by wresting them away from the cradle, it transforms the submissive, passive family creatures, the obedient slaves of the husband, into a respect-demanding army of fighters for their own and general rights, for their own and general interests. The personality of the woman steals itself, grows. But woe to the working woman who believes in the power of individual personality existing apart from others. The armored car of capital will calmly crush her. Only the serried ranks of masses of rebels can push this armored car off the path. The feeling of belongingness, the feeling of comradeship arises and strengthens itself contemporaneously with the consciousness of her personality, of her rights. 
a feeling that develops only weakly with the new woman of other social strata. This is that fundamental feeling, that sphere of feelings and thoughts, which draws a sharp line between single women earning their own livelihood and her sexual comrades from the bourgeoisie, those two essentially different social classes, regardless of any difference from the woman of the past, which is the characteristic common to both. And regardless of the fact that entrance into the ranks of the working population has transformed the inner countenance of the woman in the same direction by developing independence, strengthening personalities, broadening the mental world, women of the different social strata are driven even farther and farther apart. Okay, we only have a few more paragraphs left in this essay, but I just wanted to pause really quickly right there and just say that that passage that I just read is a beautiful encapsulation of Colin Ty's making a distinction between what she would call bourgeois feminism and socialist feminism. And here she's really clearly pointing out that while in both social classes, working women and bourgeois women, there are these changes that are going on inside them, fundamentally in their personalities, they're becoming more independent, they're learning, you know, they're they're educating themselves they're developing their own personalities and their own sort of independence vis-a-vis their husbands in society, there's a very big difference between the working woman and the bourgeois woman because the bourgeois woman has the luxury, and I really want to emphasize this, of individualism. The individual personality as a kind of archetype is really only available to women of a higher class. Whereas working woman, she says, if the working woman believes for a second that individualism will save her, that individual effort will allow her to get ahead, Kolontai says the armored car of capitalism will drive her off the road. It will crush her. Only in collectivity with other working women and working men do these new individual single women have a chance of transforming the relations of production to their benefit? And so here she really is clearly laying out that the interest, even though that the transformative processes of women of different classes are similar, the interests of those classes are diametrically opposed to each other. And I think that's really important. Okay, I'm going to go back to Colin Tai and finish the essay, and then hopefully I'll have a few minutes left at the end to talk about to talk about it a little bit more. And if not, then I'll continue the conversation in the next episode. Among those earning their own livelihood, the class struggle is experienced incomparably more clearly than among the women of the earlier type, who scarcely knew about the inevitability of the class struggle from hearsay. For the wage earner who has crossed the family threshold in order to experience on her own person the force of social conflicts, who is forced into an active participation in the class struggle, a clear, distinct class ideology acquires the importance of a weapon in the struggle for existence. It sharpens the feeling of the social conflict among wage earners. Only one thing remains common to the woman of the new type their unique difference from the woman of the past, those specific characteristics which are the hallmark of independent single woman. The latter, like the former, go through a period of rebellion, 
The latter, like the former, fight for the assertion of their personality. The one consciously on principle, the other fundamentally, collectively, under the pressure of the inevitable. But whereas with the women of the working class, the struggle for the assertion of their rights, the strengthening of their personality, coincides with the interests of the class, the women of the other social strata run into unexpected obstacles. The ideology of their class is hostile to the transformation of the feminine type. In the bourgeois milieu, women's rebellion bears a far sharper character. Its forms are set in bolder relief, and here the psychological dramas are far sharper, more variegated, and more complicated. Such a sharp collision between the psychology of women now in the process of formation and class ideology does not exist in the working class and is not even possible. The new type of woman, inwardly self-reliant, independent, and free, corresponds with the morality which the working class is elaborating precisely in the interests of its class. For the working class, the accomplishment of its mission does not require that she be a handmaid of the husband, an impersonal domestic creature endowed with passive feminine traits. Rather, it requires a personality rising and rebelling against every kind of slavery, an active, conscious, equal member of the community of the class. The psychology of the new independent single woman, according to this type, is reflected in the image of the rest of her contemporaries. The traits of women who belong to the army of those earning their own livelihood, formed by life itself, by degrees, also begins to be the hallmark of the others. It matters not that those who earn their own livelihood are still in the minority, that for each one of them, two, even three women of the old type emerge. Working women set the tone of life and form the character in respect to the image of our time. With her transvaluation of moral and sexual standards, the new women shake up the unshakable pillars of the souls of all women who have not yet embarked upon this new thorny path. The dogmas that keep a prisoner of her own worldview lose their power over their minds. The influence of women earning their own livelihood spreads far beyond their own circle. With their criticism, they, quote-unquote, poison the minds of their contemporaries. They smash old idols. They raise the banner of revolt against those truths which women have lived with for generations. By liberating themselves, the new single women earning their own livelihood also liberate the passive backward spirit as this has been molded down the centuries of their contemporary sisters. Although woman has invaded literature, she has not yet by far supplanted the heroines of the old spiritual order. Just as little as the woman human being has supplanted the wife, the echo of the husband. Notwithstanding, we note that the characteristic and psychological traits which the new single woman has introduced are found with ever greater frequency also in heroines of the old type. Women novelists, who least of all set about to give us this new type, adorn their heroines unwittingly with feelings and characteristics that were not at all peculiar to the heroines of past literary periods. Present-day literature increasingly abounds in women personages of the transitional type, 
of heroines equipped with traits of the old and alike. Moreover, a difficult process of transformation is taking place also among the woman personages of the new type already involved in the change-affecting process. The beginning is obstacled by the traditions and feelings of the past. The power of past centuries still weighs heavily even upon the new free woman. Atavistic feelings interrupt and weaken the new experiences. Outlived conceptions still hold the feminine mind thrusting towards freedom in their clutches. The old and the new struggle in the souls of women in permanent enmity. Contemporary heroines, therefore, must wage a struggle on two fronts, with the external world and with the inclinations of their grandmothers dwelling in the recesses of their beings. The transformation of the feminine psyche, which is adjusted to the new conditions of its economic and social existence, will not be achieved without a strong, dramatic self-overcoming. Every step in this direction creates collisions which were utterly unknown to the heroines of the past. And these conflicts, which take place in the souls of women, by degrees begin to draw the attention of novelists, begin to serve as sources of artistic inspiration. Woman, by degrees, is being transformed from an object of tragedy of the male soul onto the subject of an independent tragedy. So that's the end of New Woman, a very abridged version of the essay, which gives you kind of a gist of Colin Ty's argumentation about the relationship between the birth of independent women in economic uh, social production, in society, and the representation of those women in literature. I'm going to stop right now for this episode, but I'm going to continue in the next episode with a very in-depth analysis of the relationship between the mode of production and the relations of production and the evolution of women and ideologies of femininity and representations of femininity and feminine independence in literature and talk about the, the resonances of this 1918 essay as it's reflecting on the Industrial Revolution and the advent of capitalism and socialism in the Soviet Union in the very early uh, 20th century to really think and reflect around the creation of gender roles and gender ideologies and the perpetuation of certain ideal types of men and women in our contemporary moment. But I will stop now because I'm afraid that this one has gone on a little bit longer than I expected. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. I will probably record my next episode either from Italy or Germany. Omicron variant willing. I'm supposed to be traveling again very soon. So as always, keep up the good fight. <laughs>